Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, December 6th. On today's show, State of the Union Week continues. This time, we take a 10,000-foot view looking at all things American men's tennis coming off of the 2023 season. Once again, I am joined by the fantastic Ben Rothenberg, who joins me to break down all aspects of 2023 for the American men. We talk about their results week in, week out. What did the title count look like compared to last season? How do the rankings look to compared to last season? And of course, perhaps most pressingly, how do the headline results compare for the American men? And in 2023, two years prior, it is another fantastic conversation that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, before we get to it, I do want to point out it's a busy month of December for us here at Crack Rackets. Content-wise, I want to make sure you don't miss out on any of our coverage as we all get excited for 2024 over on the Great Shot podcast feed. Starting this week, you will hear our top 10 preview as we head into another exciting college tennis season. Of course, there will be podcasts on that Great Shot podcast feed at least four times a week over the next four or five weeks moving forward as we preview what promises to be another exciting year in the college tennis world. So if you haven't already, go like, rate, subscribe, review to that show. Make sure you check out our Cracked Interviews podcast as well. We've got some really fun guests on the horizon. I am certain all of you listeners will enjoy listening to, of course, a shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, let's get to it. It's our State of the Union on all things American men's tennis with the one and only Ben Rothenberg. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man, again, you all know best as a writer for the New York Times, host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast, and author of the soon-to-be-arriving book, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. Of course, he is also a big brother to us here on this show. It is our dear friend, fellow Wolverine, Ben Rothenberg. Ben, it's been 24 hours. I've missed you, my friend. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Well, this time I remembered to wear a Michigan shirt, so that's 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 an improvement for me. Although I think this might be the one that has Appalachian State on the schedule on the back. So not, not, maybe not the best shirt, but we're front only here in this Zoom view. Uh, I won't turn around. Uh, good to see you again, Gruskin. Were you at the App State game? I was. I was. And what I say, this is grim, but it wasn't the worst time I had at Michigan State. The worst one was the next year when they lost to Toledo. <laughs> App State was a good team. We know what it heard of. Toledo was a bad team. Yeah, <laughs> Toledo well, was like one in five before they came into Michigan and won. That was worse. And my parents were up that weekend. My parents were there to see the Toledo game. It was a bad time had by all. Not to one-up you, but 
my first or my sophomore year was Brady Hoke's last year, and to compound the under 500 record we had, Brady Hoke famously would not wear his headset during the game. The person who would wear it would be the head manager for the team, the head manager in that final season for Brady Hoke, my older brother Eric. So I went to every game just to watch him. When he was fired, Brady Hoke, his photo with Eric next to him wearing the headset, front page of the free press. It's something very funny that we have saved in the house because Eric, I guess, fired on that day as well. But for what it's worth to come full circle here, I was also at that App State game. I was with my cousin, my uncle, a couple other cousins as well. We sat behind the end zone, but right next to the student section. So we really weren't that far mm-hmm. apart. I was, it was what, 2007, I want to say? Seven, Something yeah. like that, yeah. So I would have been 12 years old, 11 at the time, because it would have first game of the season before I had turned 12, but shout out right around Yom Kippur. Anyways, shout out to us. We were in that stadium together many, yeah, many I, moons ago. I understand why Brady didn't wear his headset. It's not very slimming. <laughs> Fair enough. I also, there is a conspiracy theory on MGO blog, which in my opinion is the most legitimate of the alumni blogs that are out Mm -hmm. there. There is a conspiracy theory going that Shane Morris got concussed and left in the game my sophomore year and that Eric didn't like Shane Morris. So he didn't tell Hoke that the call from (laughs) up in the booth was that Morris was concussed. And so he left Shane Morris in there. And it was a wonderful conspiracy theory that, like most of them, I have no foundation in fact. Anyways, we're not here to talk conspiracy theory, although I know you will accuse me of being conspiratorial in some of my grades. We are here for another State of the Union show. This time, we're talking American men. Of course, if you want the American women's edition, just scroll down in your mini break podcast feed as Ben was kind enough to join us yesterday. Much like we did on that show, we want to do two things. We want to talk about the season for American men more broadly. Then, of course, we want to get into individual report cards discussing the most prominent men from the 2023 season. Of course, once again today, let's start with the 10,000-foot view, Ben Rothenberg. You look at this season for American men. It's interesting because you know I'm a man of statistics, and I don't think the stats do the American men justice from what they accomplished throughout the course of this year. Now, you look at slam results specifically, that does tell a better tale, but from a rankings perspective, it was actually a decline from last season for the American men, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that we can get into. You start with the top 100 rankings. There are 10 top 100 American men to end the year. That's down three from last season, and I guess that that's where we can start today's conversation. Before we get into the new additions, let's talk about who's left the top 100 yep. this year. And, you know, again, before we offer a grade, five players exit the top 100. Most notably, probably John Isner, just because he has been the face of American men's tennis for the better part of a decade. He's been the highest ranked man for the majority of that stretch as well. He's been a staple, not in the top 10, but certainly in the top 25. Felt like at every major, John Isner was seated and oftentimes on clay courts on that upset alert right from the start of the event. Of course, Isner did win a 1000 level event during his career. Uh, Of course, he did make a couple of runs that are memorable at majors. But more than anything, in an era defined by inconsistency at the top, John Isner has been that one staple of consistency. And, you know, to see him exit the top 100, you're going to feel his exit. Now, 
Jack Sock was not a top 100 player, but he announced his retirement this year as well. That's another guy who's been a face of American men's tennis for much of the next de- uh, past decade. Let's just start there. Do you feel their yep. absence at all this year, Ben? And what does that mean for American tennis, moving uh, men's tennis in particular, moving forward? Look, John isn't retired at 38. I mean, honestly, I think he probably planned on playing a couple more years because he saw Karlovich play past 40 and thought that there was a way to have sustainable uh tennis and you know be physical and, and play that kind of relatively low exertion tennis that a big guy can play around till 40 but just the results fell off a cliff for him this year and he stopped winning matches and his ranking dropped and he had had enough and he had some injury issues lingering as well too um but he was a, a really really crucial standard bearer for american men's tennis the stats would have been it was the last 15 years were already statistically the weakest 15-year period in american men's tennis history and it would have been so much worse without John Isner there. I mean, John Isner was the one keeping them having a presence in the top 10, occasionally top 20 a lot, mostly top 20, you say top 25, mostly even top 20, around 15. I'd probably say it's a lot of times sort of 11 through 16 kind of range of the rankings. Um, he he was there and, and he and he was the last man standing at a lot of Grand Slam events. He did win a, a Masters title, as you mentioned, and it wasn't a fluke Masters title either because he kept going so deep in so many Masters events. He made several more Masters finals as well. The Sock Masters win in Bercy mentioned Sock. The Sock one was much more out of nowhere. And it Sock had this sort of one spike late in the, I guess it was 2016 season or 2017 season. End of 2017. He had a they won Paris and made the semis of the, the World Tour finals. So Isner Isner was a polarizing player on court and off in a lot of ways. People really had strong opinions about his game style and if they liked watching him or or not. And you know with the, the surf bot kind of thing. You know, but the but the fact is just statistically and results wise American men's tennis would have been far more in the gutter bluntly without without isner there holding it up at his seven feet height i mean he really was there and and, and was a huge stopgap to present the dark times for american men's tennis from being much darker so he deserves a lot of credit and and gratitude from the usta from american tennis fans for that regardless of if you like him game wise otherwise he was he was he was a phenomenal uh, you know, sort of last line of defense for American tennis for a lot of a lot of really lean years. John Isner, according to the ATP Tour website, 489 career wins. That's 18th most amongst American men all time. It's ahead of guys like James Blake, Marty Fish, if you want to get really nerdy, guys like Todd Martin, Johan Creek, Aaron Crickstein. It's a really good career. Not a Hall of Fame career, but a really good career and one that a lot of American men's fans will remember because to your point again he defined this past era of american men's tennis for better or worse in the minds of many he is probably the most notable subtraction from the top 100 american men but yeah please i, I do want to mention sock too you mentioned sock there too yeah. sock retires goes off, off pickleball sock i gotta think i i have much honestly less warm things to say about sock i think sock had a tremendously disappointing year a career, honestly, didn't live up to his potential in a lot of a lot of different ways as a singles player, certainly, and also didn't even commit to doubles fully the way he could have been because he was, I really do believe, the best doubles player in the world for many years, and just didn't didn't make the push into that full time and didn't sort of respect that that part of his skills and that part of the sport. Which, fair enough, lots of people don't like doubles, but he was that good at it and played you know some. I mean, like you saw what he did like in Labor Cup, for example, he was care. He was, I think, for a while, he might still be the highest ever point scorer for Team World in labor cup because of all his doubles points um but yeah but he he had after that great surge in 2017 he really fell off and had an awful awful 2018 
just completely precipitous drop there and just didn't seem to have the the commitment and the work ethic and who knows where that comes from mentally or what, but he just didn't, didn't make the most of his gifts at all. It was very, very different than Isner. I think Isner was a really consummate pro in a lot of ways. And I don't think Zach was. The arm talent he has is undeniable. Takes two seconds of watching him hit the serve, hit the forehand, move forward, hit volleys that he could, ha- he was as talented as anyone, that ability to dictate and play on his terms when he was engaged. And again, he did crack the top 10. He did win a 1,000-level title in singles. He did win slams in doubles. It was came down to what does Jack Sock want? And I think even with his career ending, still none of us know the answer to that question. Still off to pickleball he goes. Again, he was not a top 100 player to start the year. The other exiting players from the top 100 American men's crew are players who I think have upside to return to the top 100. And this is where I think, you know, again, despite losing three top 100 players in the year-end total, despite losing two top 50 players, we go from nine to seven I think the glass is half full for American men's tennis looking forward towards the next decade. And look, we'll talk about the staples. We'll talk about the Corda, Shelton's, Fritz, Tiafos, Paul's in a little bit. The other players to exit the top 100, Maxime Cressy, who, you know, results-oriented as much as anyone, why he leaves the top 100. Him, Brandon Nakashima, who had some injuries but really struggled with some ups and downs throughout the course of this his 2023 season. Started to right the ship with some challenger success of late, but again, he will have to play through qualifying to get into the Australian Open main draw. This is a guy who was a top 50 player, an ATP Tour champion at the end of last season. He's gone And then two other notable ones, Riley Opelka out due to injury. Jensen Brooksby obviously out due to suspension, a guy who took the tennis world by storm in 2021. Here's the thing. All those guys, Opelka, Cressy, Nakashima, Brooksby, they're all born 97 or later. Like they all are still either in the midst or entering the primes of their career. If you're Brooksby, Nakashima, particularly two guys in their early 20s. That's why I feel glass half full about that stat, Ben, because it's young guys who, or in Cressy's case, still young in his ATP career, some early season lumps. That happens. Look, I mean, Opelka, first of all, is the easiest to clear me. He just had an injury and he was out all year, played one match, I believe, in Charlottesville. And he won that match against uh, Tennis Sanger. And I watched that with Mike Cation on the call a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, so he, he, if he's healthy and he comes back, and it's obviously been a long injury road for him to come back, and it's going to be tough when you're a guy with that kind of body to have to recover from any sort of major, major injury like that, uh, especially, you know, sort of lower body kind of thing as well, not like an arm injury or something, but something where it really, it's going to be a weight bearing kind of injury for someone like, for someone like Opelka. So that's not easy. Nakashima is the main one I have questions about. And honestly, I was not on tour full time this year as I was working on the book. So I don't know totally what his, his storyline was in terms of ups and downs and injuries, ins and outs. But he was the next-gen champion in 2022. He won that event, and everybody else who won that event previously to him had really used it as a springboard to pretty immediate top-level success on the tour, and Nakashima just did not. He went the opposite direction completely. And so that's disappointing um, from an American tennis perspective, if you want to say, sure, to have our first next-gen champion from America and have the, his sort of follow-up season go go so poorly. And, you know, he had been on the radar for sure before that. I mean, he made a Wimbledon fourth round and played curious, I think, there and and – uh, it's another good results that got him into the top 50 besides winning that exhibition event. But, but yeah, I mean, he, he's a definite, I think the biggest disappointment of the year for American tennis for me would definitely be Brandon Nakashima. Um, and then, and then the other ones you mentioned, uh, I forget who you mentioned, Cressy, Cressy, yeah, Cressy, you know, I think he has sort of a kind of classic sophomore slump on tour, you know, with that, playing that kind of game, you catch a lot of people off guard in your first lap around the circuit. And then the second time, 
people know what to expect. And his game also being a certain volleyer is so confidence-based, right? And he was so high on confidence in 2022. I did not talk to him in 2023. He was mostly not playing a lot of main draw events. I also, again, wasn't on tour tons. Um, so I don't know where his confidence is at. His confidence was so high. It was so striking in 2022. And you just need that kind of self-belief to be running in behind every ball and playing certain volley. It's so, it's so belief heavy in a very specific way. In he also, so he, he also that doesn't has to come back for him to be the best. He also doesn't hit second serves. Like Maxime yeah. Cressy goes two first serves, and he's going to lay it out on the table for you. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to do my game. I'm going to play my game, and if you can disrupt it, credit to you. But you're right. People know serve to that forehand. People know press that forehand in extended rallies. And, again, they know the spot's a little bit better to pick on the serve as well. That said, when he is serving well, you saw it at the challenger level on indoor hard courts in particular. The quicker the surface, he is just going to be an issue to deal with. And, again, all these guys, 97 or earlier, or, or later, excuse me, they're all pretty young still in their careers. Opelka a little bit less so. And coming off of injury, he's a fascinating player because looking at some of the other stats put up this season, you look at the titles, the finalists com- from this year compared to last, six title wins this year compared to eight title winner, uh, title wins, excuse me, last season. Now, four guys won titles this year, four guys won it last year. This year it's Fritz, Tiafo, Eubanks and Shelton. Last year it's Fritz, Cressy, Nakashima and Opelka. I mean mm. again, Riley won two titles last year. Riley was really good through the first two top 20 player. of the season. Yeah, maybe player. even better than that in Australia last year and you know again Riley has plenty of other interests in life, but you forget how well things were going for him on court before that injury emerged. So should he be healthy? We know what that ceiling is. You know, Nakashima was a little bit of a sophomore slump as well. But again, a guy who still could have hypothetically, I think, played the next-gen finals this year by age. Like, you add that to the fact that Fritz, Tommy Paul, they're both turning 27 next season. Shelton Corda, uh, Tiafo turning 26. Shelton Corda still in their early 20s as well. You look at the newcomers to the top 100 this year. Alex Mickelson, teenager. Chris Eubanks still in his mid-to-late 20s. Guys like J.J. Wolf, Mackie McDonald, mid-to-late 20s. It's a group that you feel like we might be able to age with for five years, right? So with those statistics in mind, those rankings in mind, you know, I can get into the slam success here in a second as well. How are you feeling about the depth in American men's tennis? No, really good. Before I get to the depth, I want to quickly say something on Brooksby, who we also didn't mention, who we mentioned in passing, it just someone fell out. I did a little thread back in my Ben Rock Tempberg days on Twitter when I couldn't get into my main account, that brief, terrible window of that. And Rooksby, I think it should be a cautionary tale to everybody in tennis to take more responsibility for yourself because Brooksby delegated a lot and trusted that a lot of people were going to be taking care of him in terms of whereabouts, in terms of changing things for him. He would get on flights, change where he's going to be and just assume that his agent or whoever else was going to magically have his back at all times to be his fairy godmother or guardian angel over his shoulder at all times. And it just didn't work out that way at all. And so I think people, I think players should actually read the Brooksby report and, and get a sense of of responsibility for that because the Brooksby stuff is just sort of maddening reading it, especially when he already has two strikes and he's doing getting on planes and flying across the country and not changing his whereabouts and stuff. And it's just, anyway, I do think it's worth focusing on because that's a great, great talent that American tennis is going to be without for all of next season because of that sort of immaturity bluntly from him on that level. Um, so that's very frustrating as an American tennis fan as someone who likes watching Justin Brooksby a lot. Um, but overall top level impressions of the, of the field are fantastic. I mean, 
you know, I'm a kind of quality over quantity guy, largely. I think we, we've established versus that's kind of, we shift a bit. I'm more about that top line results and the top line results for the American men were great. I mean, first of all, five of the top 25 at year's end, that's huge. 20% of the top 25. That's really, really good. And, 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 and the same thing in the top 20, four in the top 20. Um, and the slam results were better too, you know, uh, Francis made that breakthrough run to the U.S. Open semifinals last year. That was a breakthrough first time in a slam semi for a long time for an American man, or for, I guess at the U.S. Open for a long time. And then we had two slam semis this year with Tommy Paul in Australia and with Ben Shelton in the U.S. Open. And yeah, it was just, and you know, throw in some other results as well. Hugh Banks, uh, obviously huge, huge bonus surprise. Wonderful story. What he did on grass, especially this year. First breaking in top 100 was already a feel-good story. They took that and ran with it. And there's well, actually just all, to expand all this on that good point. things to say. Well, just yeah, to expand ahead. on that point about the slams quickly, because that's where I would end my point before making the grade. You know, again, talked about no. the changes in the top 100, talked about how some of these veterans have performed. And it's a credit, by the way, to J.J. Wolf. He sustained a top 60 ranking. It's just real. Marcos Garon, Mackie McDonald, they've been top 70 guys for a couple of years now. It's clear that's the tier they belong in. But the headlines have gotten better as well. And we'll talk about all of these people people individually but you know first and foremost the slam results last year at the slams was better you had a guy in Francis Tiafo as you mentioned at the US Open reach uh, the semi-final round you had uh, a guy in Wimbledon I think it was Taylor Fritz reach the quarterfinal round as well that was it though at the majors last season you know this year excluding the French Open something was happening for team American men at every major. And you start at the opening major in the opening month of the season where a guy like Seppi Korda was one of the 10 best players in the world, beats a Medvedev before he goes on that undefeated run, beats a Hercot to make the quarterfinals. Obviously, Tommy making the semis, beating Ben in the quarters as well. An All-American quarterfinal that, by the way, was preceded by Shelton beating J.J. Wolf, two college Americans in that round of 16 as well. There was a moment at the Australian Open, a little bit less so maybe at Wimbledon this year. Still, for what it's worth, you had the excitement surrounding Chris Eubanks winning that title in Majorca, following it up, playing Medvedev really well in the quarterfinals as well. That was a little bit of buzz. And then, of course, best of all, first since the 90s in so many ways at that U.S. Open, whether it's Tommy versus Ben, then Ben versus Francis. You had Taylor getting to the quarterfinals pretty comfortably before Djokovic gave him the business. It was a really good headline year. Obviously, Shelton making the semis was a massive moment as well. All of that context in mind, Ben Rothenberg, I ask you for your 2023 American men's grade and your thought on it all. Yeah, I mean, definitely something in a, in a low A range, A, A minus kind of range. Again, I think A plus has to be winning a slam. Uh, for for this country, and I do think they're capable of that. The other thing I'll say, just a big, we'll get to them individually. I, I assume coming up shortly, but this year was good despite both Fritz and Tiafo, who were the two best players, I think having arguably disappointing years. And that to me is, is impressive, right? Because you look at certainly for the first through the first three slams of the year, we had good slam year, but the quarter finalists or better at the slams were Paul Shelton, Corda and Eubanks. Those the guys who were supposed to be the leaders of the pack were not leading the pack. And so that I think is a sign of the depth, right? But at the same time, Fritz making it to, you know, Turin last year, but not this year, winning a, a 1000 last year, but not this year. 
Francis not equaling his slam semifinal run. He does, I think it was meaningful definitely for Francis. They did break into the top 10 for a bit this year. That was a goal and he got that goal for a bit, even if he finishes at 16. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, there, there it's, a, it's a slightly mixed bag at the top. I, I will, I will say, but for me, it's an A minus year for the American men 90, with, with, with some impressive extra credit coming from guys. You didn't think we're going to bump the grade up. 92 feels very right because Shelton had the year at the slams that I thought quarter was going to have. And if you combine Shelton and quarter into one really promising American prospect, you know, again, that's what guarantees you in the A range with those two continuing to get better. You have guys in Taylor, Tommy, and Francis, who you could argue actually had the best seasons of their career here in 2023. And don't worry, we're going to get into that argument here in a moment. But all of them flirting with top 10 status at different points on the calendar. Tommy, giving Carlos Alcaraz real runs for his money during that North American hardcore stretch. Like there were just real moments on the calendar for the headline guys in every part of the season. And then again, filling in the blanks. You had your Chris Eubanks grass court runs. You had Mackie doing Mackie things at various points of the calendars. Mickelson in Newport. Mickelson at the challenger level. Like there were things. Emilio Nava had a moment in New York as well. Like there were just things to get excited about from players who are all or should at least all be a part of our lives for over the next half decade. And so that plus the slam progression, yes, you didn't have a 1,000 level title, but Americans were pretty good, by the way, in the sunshine swing, Tiafo at Indian Wells, I think semifinals, Fritz Eubanks quarterfinalists in Miami. 92 feels right. It's not quite an A, but it's the highest possible A minus. And if there's a curve at the end, you're going to get boosted into that A range because I did think it was another building block. Final word can go to you. And credit to the American men. They're not satisfied with this. Yes. I, what I said about Fritz and Tiafo, they would agree with me wholeheartedly. They wow. would say they could have been better this year. All right. Well, let's and get I in. like that. I like that a lot about. Them. Well, then let's get into those big guns. That's where I want to start. I've got five players in the big gun category, the players who I anticipate will be the face of American men's tennis for the next half decade. And there's still a spot for Opelka. Maybe even a Brooksby. Oh, Brooksby, just because of like if he comes out and does a, in twenty twenty five what he did in twenty twenty one and like has that sort of whirlwind result again, then you're like, oh, maybe this is real. Um, but you know, again, maybe there's another spot available on Big Gun Mountain. For now, we've got five. Honestly, Alex Mickelson knocking on the door as well. But for now, we're going to stick to five men, and we're going to start with Taylor Fritz first because statistically. Yes, he didn't have the Indian Wells run that he had in 2022, but statistically, you could argue 2023 was the best season of his career. 53 wins, it's the most he's had at the tour level in any season. Career high, 86.7 break percentage. He was at 22, uh, excuse me, 86.7% hold percentage. If he was breaking serve 86.7% of the time, he'd probably be number one in the world. 86.7% uh, hold percentage, career high for him. His 22.5 break percentage, a top 25 number, and 2.2% above his career average. He also won four titles this season. That ain't too shabby. Excuse me, three titles this season. That ain't too shabby. Now, two of them at the 250 level, the other being United Cup. But there was just a consistency to Taylor Fritz, week in, week out. He was always one of the 8 to 12 best players in every field, every event that he played. It's worth noting he, of course, made that quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. He also, uh, again, I think it was what? What was the other run that he had at the majors? Uh, no, third round Roland Garros, excuse me, second round Wimbledon, second round Australian Open. So you're right. Disappointing there. 
semifinal Monte Carlo. That's what was on my mind. Is it was a pretty good clay court season for him. Semifinals of Munich as well. Semifinals in Geneva. Progress for a guy who had really struggled on the dirt throughout the course of his career. Continues to get better as a mover. Like no one has ever doubted his ability to strike a tennis ball. It's always been, is he going to become athletic enough to get into those plays, to get into those ground strokes against elite competition? Is, uh, you know, will he ever learn to volley? You feel like if he does that, boy, will you have a heck of a player in Taylor Fritz, who's already been a guy who's flirted with top 10 status at multiple points in his career. What do you give the Taylor Fritz 2023? I give him a B. I think that I think that I think that it was fine. I don't think it was up to I mean B B minus honestly because for him the the thing to do was to break through at the slams, mini play and he didn't do that. He only made one second week of a slam this year, and that was at the U.S. Open where I think he got a pretty favorable draw, and then he kind of got swamped by Djokovic pretty hard in the quarters. Um, you know, just that's that's a great base off of what he showed last year. I, I have to take you at your starting point from where you were last year. We're getting into Turin. They made semis to Turin last year, right? In 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 2022 so and and winning a master's title so expectations were were going to be tough or higher and and so i don't think he did much to surpass those expectations or really set the bar higher for himself this year um look at his other matches against the the top top guys he lost in cincinnati Djokovic, also love and four and then he lost to alcaraz four and two in miami so you know the, the the monte carlo was the great week actually for him this year that was the week that like really he exceeded expectations making Semis there would not have thought was possible. He won the first set of that semi actually against Rublev uh, in that tournament and, and could have made the final there, which would have been an amazing uh, first time in a long time. God, that American man would have made a Masters final on clay. I don't remember the last time that would have happened. So that was the standout week for him. But you say three titles and then you say two 250s in a United Cup. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, what are I we guess- talking about here? I, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, again, I know that I say this about Fritz because I know that he says the same thing about himself. Fritz wants more. Fritz is a super ambitious guy, and he's not going to be satisfied with his top line results this year. So the ranking, being top 10 is good. I think he'll take 10. Maybe he should. But the actual underlying results, the fundamentals of it are not impressive to me. Here's the case. I would go B plus, and here's my case for it. Statistically, again, most wins of his career, you look at it, he's one of seven guys to win more than 50 matches this year. And that list of names is Medvedev, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Sinner, Rublev, Zverev, Fritz. It's a good list to find yourself on. You look for him uh, in terms of quarterfinals on the season. 13 quarterfinals. That's tied for the second most with Alcaraz, Trails, Justinil, Medvedev. He went 8-5 and five in those quarterfinal matches, reached a ninth with a withdrawal, so nine total semifinals. That's fifth most overall on the year. Again, his three titles tied for third most on the ATP Tour this season. I also don't think his record in big matches were that different than last season. You look at his record against top 20 opponents. Last year, he was 10-8. and eight. This year, he was 7-7 seven and seven. against the top 10. Last year, he was 6-7. and seven. This year, he was 3-4. and four. Like, Yes, there like, were less shots against the top 10. And part of that, that is a that, byproduct. That, 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 well, well, that's a byproduct of him flopping early. Well, I mean, that's a byproduct of him playing soft competition and not getting to play the big dogs. My point would be that that's why it has to be in the B range because he didn't get as many bites yeah. at the big apples you would have liked this season. That said, he dominated everyone he was supposed to dominate. And to consolidate that position of, hey, I'm always in the race for the ATP Tour Finals. Again, American men's tennis hasn't had someone like that since Priisner. And it speaks to Taylor Fritz, you know, again, 
he didn't have an Indian Wells title this year, and he was still in the race for the top uh, for the tour finals. That speaks to how your point, and this is why I think our points complement each other well, that this is a guy who wants it. This guy is going to play as many weeks as his body will allow him to play, and sometimes even more than that. This is a guy who comes back from a knee surgery and is playing Wimbledon less than a month later. A guy who will maximize his body to whatever, again, extent it will allow. And you see him getting stronger. You see him getting quicker. It is a dramatic change in his athleticism since when he first came out on tour. Now, sadly, there has been a dramatic change in the volleys. And with how well he hits the ground strokes, you just feel like, again, if he can learn, he's learning better when to come in. It's just executing that first volley. Once he learns to execute that first volley, just life could be pretty easy for him with the weapons he possesses. I'm not selling my Taylor Fritz stock. I'm probably holding. I think 8 to 15 is probably the range, or 9 to 15. No, 8 to 15, because he can upset some top guys every so often. That's the range he lives in. If you're if the price is 10 and you think the expectation is 8 to 15, you should sell. Because you don't think there's much upside and there's more likely he's going to drop in that window. No, look, but I, I don't mean, think like, he drops much thing, like, further I, than that, because I think his weapons are that good. I think, I think Fritz... I say all this, like I say things that are, you know, more critical of him. And I'll also say his U.S. Open run and looking, I just looked, looked it up. I mean, his run to the quarters was, was charm and soft, yeah. as we say, going. But he, Johnson, didn't drop a, Barias, he also didn't drop Menchik, a set. Stricker. But he didn't I drop understand, a set. but he also didn't play anybody who yeah, was at all remotely. Don't hate the play. I hate the hate the draw. Like he I'm dominated. Saying, these are these should. are the things that these are these. That's a run that I think artificially inflates his ranking a bit. Right. And so but here's the thing. Yeah. All that is to say, I think Fritz is not falling that much short of his potential because I think he's already done such a good job of maximizing what he has. I think he's frankly one of the worst natural athletes of all these American men, right? But he still finds this way to to make it work and works really hard. As you said, pushes through all sorts of stuff for better or for worse. And that could cost him at some point in his career if he, if he really, because you know he plays with fire a lot of times and playing through injuries at various points in his career. Albie does seem to heal really quickly, but I don't know if that'll last forever. Yeah, but I don't think he's at the same time as I'm saying all these things that are more unimpressed about him. I don't think I don't think he's uh, you know just built to be that much better than he is. I think he's kind of doing the most he can. Some of it is mental assurance. Some of it is like like he didn't have anything like this this year. But like the no show against Brandon Holt last year's U.S. Open, like that's the kind of thing you can't control. That's the kind of thing you you have to cut out of of your game if you want to be a top player. And he didn't have any really bad losses like that this year. His loss to Popperin. At the Australian Open this year, Popperin treed out of his mind. That was an unreal performance by Popperin, and that was I don't blame Fritz much for that at all. So, yeah, I you know I I think that he's doing fine. I just don't think the ceiling for him is super high. So I would at his current price, I would sell. That's a fair argument to make. I the reason why you don't sell is I just would bet on him sustaining this level. I think this this is if this is who he is, he can be this for the remainder of his career with how well he strikes the ball, and again how committed he is to being the best he can be week in, week out, and staying in shape and prioritizing that part of uh, his training. Again, I, I understand your argument. I would go B-plus for this season. You put together a top 10 season at a minimum, you got to be a B-plus. Like, again, if I would have told you Taylor Fritz was a top you 10. You softy, you. Yeah, all right. It's a little soft. Top 10. I, li- I, like, the, I like that about you. I like that Not about a, you. Let I me say this, good, though. Good cop, bad cop here. Not good, an 89. Good, good. I'm thinking 87. Like, lowest B+, plus, but congrats. You get your B+, plus, Taylor Fritz, for better or for worse. Let's go to Francis Tiafo next. Because, again, 
there are metrics you can use to argue Francis Tiafo had the best season of his career. 39 victories for him, a career high at the tour level, 65% win percentage, also a career high for him. Three titles now. Again, one includes United Cup, but he also wins Stuttgart on the grass. He wins Houston on the clay. He's now won titles on every surface in his career. 85.6% hold percentage. Not only is that a top 15 number amongst top 50 players, it's career high for Francis by 4.5%. The big number, though, is the break percentage, 22.1%. Doesn't sound like much. It's a career high for him. It's 3% above his career average. And it speaks to the fact that he has minimized the forehand as an attackable part of his game. You just can't serve through it as easily as you were once able to do and expect a short ball to come back, of course. Again, Francis Tiafo 16 and 5 in first round matches this year. That may sound like a little thing, but winning those sorts of matches was why Francis was unable to crack the top 50 early in his career even when the upside was clearly there and he just doesn't lose bad matches like that with much frequency anymore. He also, you know, puts together a quarterfinal run at the U.S. Open. He puts together a round of uh, 32 Roland Garros, round of 32 Australian Open, round of 32 Wimbledon, where again, lost to seeds in all three events. It was the most consistent year. There's no doubt about it for Francis Tiafo. Now, he ended in on a sour note because after losing to Shelton, he lost seven of nine matches to end his season. And the Shelton loss in particular stung because it felt like that was his moment, another semifinal, him and Goff competing, like New York would be ready to erupt in the best way possible. Didn't happen. That certainly burst a little bit of a bubble. But I'm not going to let that distract from what was otherwise the most consistent season of Francis Tiafo's career. And again, consistency was the issue early in his career. It's just not anymore. And now it's about his tennis. It's not about anything other than that, in my opinion, Ben. Thus, I start to think B plus A minus range, waffling in between the two. I'll let you try to persuade me one way or the other. Yeah, I'm kind of in that same general range. B plus A minus, probably B plus, just because the the slam results weren't replicated. But look, overall rankings, he went up. Okay, hold on. But let me stop you there, because I just like... I fundamentally disagree with that, that the slam results weren't replicated in 2020. Semi, didn't happen again. Okay. Didn't happen again. But if I would have told you at the start of the season, hey, Tiafo's going to follow up last year's U.S. Open semifinal with a quarterfinal this year, you would have said that would be a great result for Francis. Like, you you can't let though, like his loss for, to Ben, which, of course, was a very disappointing loss given the context. Of Usually, the he kind of no-showed I that agree, match. But, but it was still overall a good result for Francis to make the quarterfinals in New York. Like in a, in a, fine, in but, a but the rest of the, slant, the, lecture, the rest of the slants weren't good either. Well, I mean, third the round the losses slants, to goes, seeds. What Zverev, Dimitrov, and uh, Hachinov, three of the ten best players this year. You can look at me. I'm unimpressed. Bluntly, <laughs> yeah, he seeded true. these slams. He's seeded these slams. The Zverev loss. Zverev was still like rusty at this point. I thought he was going to win that match. I thought it was a, a not great loss from even if on paper Zverev had a good year. Um, the Shelton loss, it was it was a really surprising no-show from him. And I'm going to st- start with the negative because you started me on defending myself here. Gosh, it's just under attack already. <laughs> I mean, he's the veteran guy, and he just let Shelton have that moment, let him have the stage, and he really seemed to yeah. shrink in that match. And it affected him for the rest of the year. You look at his results after. He loses the next four matches in a row uh, to guys he should be beating. Goyo, Greek Spore, Sonigo, and Karatsev, four losses in a row after that. And he clearly was down from that. It's not we did the women's show yesterday. 
not unlike what happened to Madison Keys, honestly, after another brutal loss in New York, to, just, I don't think she won a match the rest of the year. So, you know, that's a that's a that's a gut punch. And then he finally wins a match when Dan Evans is up four one and retires. So that was how Tiafa got off the schneid there. You know, I I like Fritz. I think he wants more. I was actually at an event they held for him at College Park at the JTCC, his his academy where he trained that was in, I guess, late July, early August before the city open. He just broke into the top 10, treated again like a hometown hero, which he is very much that place. It was great to see. He was very proud of the top 10 thing. And that's a meaningful milestone for him getting in the top 10. And he does finish the year at a higher ranking than he stopped. I mean, he started the year at 19, gets to, fifth, gets to 16 with a peak at 10. That's a good year overall but there's a couple moments of just uh, falling flat on some big stages which is unlike him that i take points off for but again you're right the what you said the record in first time matches has been the best part of this era and this started last year too i think for tiafo of 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 being consistent week in week out and that's been a real hallmark of his work with wayne ferreira uh over the years it's just been a, a much much less volatile quantity like the, the lows aren't as low with tiafo as they used to be anymore so that that's been uh, really positive for him, but yeah, I you know if he finished the if he'd been able to did a better fall, let's say, and he had sub six points in the ranking, you see, it might be something in the A minus range. But I'm going to give it a, a B plus for yeah. just for the the ranking slide and and for not doing as well as he did at the slams last year, but especially because knowing that that Shelton match should have been winnable, and I think he really underperformed in that one match. If Fritz was an 87, I see. I, I think Fritz had a better season than Tiafo. I think. I had equal expectations. It was ranked ahead of him. Ranking well, say so. I think they both had meet expectations well seasons where, again, they followed up on what they did in 2022 and at the very least matched those sorts of performances. Now, why Tiafo's a B-plus and not an A-minus is because the opportunity was there for it to be an A-minus season. Again, can beat for him to win – Titles now on clay, grass courts, hard courts. It just proves his game works everywhere. His serve is elite now, and his ability to follow that up with just a combination of anything, plus one power, drop shots, slices, serve and volley. He can just attack you in so many different ways, so many different skills, uses his athleticism so well. Again, to lose that Ben match when the opportunity was right there for you, to not beat any of Dimitrov, Hatchinov, or that version of Zverev at Roland Garros to go zero and three in those three matches. It's progress because he got bites at the apple in every in every event. But you know, again, fell just short. So I'd probably go. You know, I'll give both he and Fritz eighty eights. That's where we're going to keep it. Is I'm not going to curve either of them up to a minuses. But again, solid B pluses in that you met my expectations. You kept status quo. And to yeah. your point, two Americans, Fritz, Tiafo, both were top ten. At some point this season, that's got to mean something given that absence in American men's tennis for quite some time. And the fact that both are entering are still in, excuse me, their mid 20s, even coming out of the 2024 season. And obviously a player who's been a part of this grouping for quite some time is Tommy Paul, who maybe compared to preseason expectations had the best season of the bunch. But again, you look for Tommy. 
career year by the numbers, reached a career high of 12, uh, currently ranked 13 to end the season, career high 41 victories, career high 60.3 win percentage, career high 81.8 hold percentage, and a 24.4 break percentage, which is not a career high, but is still a percent above his career average. You look for Tommy this season. No, there were no titles. There were two tour-level finals. Acapulco, one of the more memorable matches, if you're a nerd like me, between he and Fritz in the semis, then he and Demonauer in the final. Uh, he makes a final on grass courts in Eastbourne, makes a final losing to Andy Murray and in what is always one of those fun second-week Masters challengers in France, uh, three-set final there. So for what it's worth, made finals on all three surfaces this year. Semi-finals of the Australian Open, the big breakthrough to follow the year, which again, he followed up so well. He was top eight in hard-court wins this season, played Alcaraz so, so well during the North American hard-court stretch. You know, there were moments, and I still think this argument is very real heading into the offseason, and maybe this is a discussion we should have now. So we're going to do a quick tangent here, Ben Rothenberg. Let me ask you this. All right. Before we get into Tommy's season specifically, who is the best American man right now in your mind? Because I think the argument is maybe as fun as it has been in at least the six years I've been doing this podcast and maybe in more than a decade. Like I'm just trying to figure out terms here. So we're saying if you put them all in a four in a in a tournament, whatever, who would win? I don't like to or, have terms or, because or, they constrain answers. I allow my listeners as well as myself to go with whatever criteria. Because there's you different would like. things. But yeah, there's that's different the question. Things. I mean, you like, throw there, them to the because I do think Tommy's going to get one of my highest grades of the year. Yeah. I'll say. I mean, but at the same time, biggest overall upside, I think it's probably Shelton. But then, um, no, right you know. now, right now, you're right. Right now, they're put into a tournament. It's all the Americans. Brooksby's off suspension. Opelka's foot feels fine. <laughs> John's like, I got one more in me. So does Jack. <laughs> Who's winning? Not Jack. Um, I think that it's going to be, <laughs> I think that it's going to be, uh, it's tough. Michael it's tough, also Ma- it's, it's tough also because matchup because Taylor actually plays the rest of them really well. Mm-hmm. You know, Taylor's not the best player per se. He plays Tiafo, for example, really well. Um, Sandgren wins. His honeymoon's paid for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tough question. I don't, Michael it's a great, it's a great that I don't have an easy answer for this question. It's a good sign that there is some, a lot of p- tightness at the top. Um, well, I'd like everyone to tweet at us. Real quick. Yeah, wait, let I, me do a quick plug for the list. Come on, Ben. Yeah. Let me, for the please, listeners please, at Ben Rothenberg, yeah. the real one, not the demo at Ben Rothenberg at AL Gruskin. Who is the best American man right now in your mind? And I'm not going to limit the criteria, but this hypothetical scenario we're going with is you throw all the American men in a tournament. Who do you think is winning the event? Tweet it at us. Ben Rothenberg, continue. Yeah, I mean, look, Shelton's a great competitor and and not – sorry, I meant, I meant Tom. And Shelton's he beat – no, too. and he beat two of them. Tiafo yeah. Paul, back to back in New York. Exactly. Like, it, I don't know, has, Shelton, has Shelton played first? I don't remember. I don't think they played, they've played yet. yet. I don't believe so. Yeah. So I would put them in my final. I really picked Taylor just because I know he plays well against the other ones. He just matches up historically very well against certainly Francis mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, yeah. Corda, it's, though, it's what tough. if Corda's? It's January Corda. And like, because I think yeah. Corda played. So here's why this argument is so fun is because there are five men legitimately in the argument. Yeah. Taylor's it's, been the. You can make the case for any of them. Taylor, really the can. most consistent week in, week out. And you're right. Historically, he's played his peers well. Francis 
you tell Francis, hey, we're playing this event, it's only Americans, and it's like the in-season NBA tournament where there's a huge prize pool for all of you at the end, particularly the winner. Like, Francis gets the eye of the tiger. I don't know if I'm betting against him if you're playing this at Billie Jean King. Like, Tommy is just a gamer, and the better his opponent plays, the better Tommy you get. At the same time, bright lights for Shelton, and I still think the best tennis we saw from any American man this season was Sebi Corda in January. I'm locked into this event. Like it would First be of all, wonderful. Can I say it's kind of I want you insert profane, I know you bleep the show. Yeah. But it's it's that we don't have this tournament. Yeah. How is there not just as part of the normal tennis calendar, the American championships? All the Americans, both men's and women's combined event. Mixed if you want, sure, why not? Have, decide who's the best American. This is something that most sports and would we have, have a national facility. A, dom- a domestic championship. Why do we not have that? It would be such a cool event. We should absolutely have this you event. You should tweet that. US, USTA, I know you're listening. You should absolutely do this event. <laughs> you know, like do it. Or some private person can do it as an as a EXO, but make it that thing and throw some money at it and the guys will come and have it be best player in America. We should have national champions in this sport. Why the heck not? I also think that too for Olympic qualifying for the record. I would love to see a play-in tournament among a certain number of people. Maybe you can pre-qualify the top two or something uh, for Olympics, but have the rest play in a in a domestic tournament that that's a real cool thing that the sport has it has been doing and is not doing i would love to see more of that especially great so please agree with me go ahead yeah no and i then, very much i then. very much yeah. agree with you particularly given we're going to talk about this later the absence of some of the events of leaving the calendar there's not a lot of american tennessee left and to bring no, in the true. best american men bring in the best american women guarantee that event i do think american tennis fans travel for it so i completely agree with you tweet that out tag me in it so you mentioned business. I will allude to that. Yes. Mixed front on the business year where you have Atlanta and Newport both leaving the calendar where a lot of these guys gets a lot of points year in, year out. Although you do have Dallas going to a 500, which is sure. nice. So the points are going somewhere. Um, the other thing I'll say, we didn't mention sort of state of the union type U.S. men's tennis talk. Really bad performance in Davis Cup. I don't, maybe we don't care about that as a nation at this point. I don't know. But look at the group we were in with Netherlands and Finland and Croatia and to and to go and to flop like that. My boy Greek really, sport. really poor. Savori. Yeah. No, you're yeah. right. And Rajiv and Krejcik did their job. And Tommy and Francis both played. Like it's not as though they didn't yeah, play. Exactly. And so, you know, we didn't have Taylor, but they didn't win. They were yeah, they went on two. And they didn't make it, yeah, out of the group play stage. That was disappointing. That said, I'm not gonna let you get out of this. Who's the best American man right now? Shelton. Wow. 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 Look, I mean, he beat the other two at the U.S. Open, which is the closest thing we have to our national championships at this point. And then I think he would beat Fritz on other best days. I really so. like this national championship idea. I, it's, and it's such a it's good idea. So fe- it's such a good idea. It's so feasible, especially in Olympic year. Let me ask you this. What if you play yeah. it not in between the Sunshine Swing, but after Miami, instead of Monte Carlo, you just have everyone stay an extra two weeks. And instead of Houston, you... instead of Houston, just play it that week. Oh, but you in have Houston, to play it in Houston. Houston can host it, but not on a hard court. Yeah, on a hard yeah, yeah, court. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess that's just not right. Yeah. No, but that I'm would be in. great, and that, and that could be the U.S. Olympic. You know, like, you know who's the dark horse in that event? Just because he's got that dog in him, as the kids like to say. The dark horse is Stevie Johnson in that event to just come in and be like, I I got one more in me because he's the goat. To a lot of they, they all call him the goat. And I'm just saying, when you have been the best in the world at something, and he has been the best college tennis player in the world, he's when you're just the best ever at something, there's a confidence that you have and that bears 
uh, or that shows itself, dare I say, in an event like this. So I'm just saying Stevie would be my dark horse to win that event. That is a very gray dark like, horse. Like yes, he's you're, beating you're right. Eubanks yes. round one. Then he's probably got Mackey round two. He goes through Mackey round two. The tough matchup is if he runs into Fritz. Like that's a tough one for him. But if it's Fritz like or, or Ben or Ben. Or, or one of the better players. Or, or one of the Tommy. better players is better than him, yes. <laughs> Look, that's why he's the dark horse. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Or like a Mickelson. Um, but put give give Ethan Quinn a wild card into this as the NCAA champion. I'm, give the Kalamazoo champion, Lerner TN, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, a wild card into this. Martin Dom. Like, I'm in. I'm in on this event. You go Shelton. <sighs> healthy, healthy court is the highest level I've seen from anyone Oh, man. I'm not going – I mean, to pick Taylor is just to look at the rankings. I'm going Francis. I think Francis. Francis – okay. Last thing on this, and then I swear we'll move on. Here's why Francis is winning this event. Because the greatest junior match ever played was a five-set final in Kalamazoo that went the way of Francis Tiafa over Stefan Kozlov. I've seen Francis win this event. The closest thing we have to it are the boys' national championships in Kalamazoo. Francis won that event. He is my pick to win this national championship. And you know who has to cover it day in, day out on the Zoo Tennis blog is Colette Lewis. She is the only person who's going to be allowed to attend this event. It'll be on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, so we'll be broadcasting it. Don't you worry. And now Ben's going to be like, oh, but you've got to have my cation on it, Gruskin, because you suck at everything, even though I come on your show and this is just me what? picking I on you. I didn't think none of that. As I said none my, of that. I know, but you think it. You think it, Ben. Okay. No, I can see it no. in your eyes. First of all, I was agreeing so heartily with your Colette Lewis point. She should absolutely be the only I know, but it should be. My, and it also probably should be Mike calling it. This is me acknowledging realism. But it should yeah, be me. He's but great. He's great. Let me, let me be the Mike. color. Let me sit in the color. Um, 100%. Anyways. I just wanted to show you one of my favorite souvenirs from the last from 2022 that I got. I was doing reporting for my book. Uh, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice for now. One of the people quoted in that, or she, both two people from this family are quoted, and I went to this place. You see, uh, you see this? Kozlov Tennis Academy? Yeah, there it is. With all sorts of photos of Stefan on it. We can't get Love through it. a podcast like this without talking at least 30 seconds of Stefan Kozlov. So, yeah. all that said, tangent was worth it. We're going to leave it in, Westoff. Tommy Paul. Great for Tommy Paul. A. Yeah. I mean, easy A, because you, you see what he started when he finished. I mean, he started at 35. And makes a slam semi and a very, very workmanlike professional slam semi, um, you know, where he was playing guys who are around him in the rankings, some above, some below, largely. I mean, beats, uh, he's 35, he beats number 32, Davidovich Hokina in the second round. He beats Brooksby, who's 39. He beats Batista Gu, who's 25. And then he beats Ben Shelton, who was sort of the the, the hot new thing on campus. Uh, that uh, that tournament is, you know, but really surging. In four sets, and then he does his best against uh, against uh, Djokovic, who's a terrible matchup for him, and he loses what five, one, and two, or something like that. So he can't ask for much better from him right there. Already starts this year, already kind of almost guaranteed a range with that kind of start, honestly, and then backs it up pretty decently. Makes the Acapulco final, uh, does okay the rest of the year. You know, nothing spectacular except for you know, obviously the Alcaraz matches in the summer were great fun. Beats Alcaraz again in Canada, loses to him tough one in Cincinnati. Uh, U.S. Open, he plays Shelton in a tight match, and Shelton's better than him, and so be it. But beat um, Davidovich for the round and a, before. Yeah, and a decent fall. better, Certainly better than Tiafo's fall. And yeah, A, easy A. And he's very, if it wasn't for the, all these points coming off in Australia, 
mean, he really has the momentum to at least cameo at US number one at some point next year yeah. um, to get past Fritz a bit. But he's with the ranking points with the semis finals event, it's probably not going to happen. He was Although really- Fritz, I'd have to look at the first week because Fritz is, I don't know what kind of points Fritz has from United Cup, but it's possible he could be, if the United Cup points drop, then maybe, maybe Tommy could get there at the Australian Open. I don't he was, know. He was Maybe. really good everywhere. 21 and 5 overall in first matches this season as well. Speaks to his consistency. But yeah, played some of the more memorable matches of the year. The Alcaraz matches, the Demon match in Mexico. Obviously, if you're a Davis Cup fan, disappointing one there. The five set win over Safulin, US Open second round, where he's down two sets to love, digs himself out of that. And it felt like for him to even make that fourth round was a coup, uh, given some of the positions he had found himself in. But. Again, I think it was a pretty good year for Tommy Paul overall. I'd go A- minus just because didn't get that title and knocked on the door so many times. The Sarundalo match in Eastbourne, won, he really should have won that match. That one slipped away from him. I'd probably go 92. Again, he was the one who exceeded expectations more than anyone of that peer group of him, Fritz and Tiafo. That's why he's in the A range when the others aren't. Would have loved to see him in that title circle. So that's the one thing that would have missed and been the feather in the cap of an A season for Tommy Paul. Still 91, 92 on the Gruskin scale. Not too shabby of a year for TP. And you mentioned it. There are five top 25 Americans. We got two other big dogs to get to here. Then we're going to blast through the rest rapid fire. Let's talk Ben Shelton. You've given a lot of praise. You called him your American player to beat right now, the best American man. Make the case for why, reflect on his year. It's an unequivocal in the A's. I mean, even though he was under 500 for 90% of it, he made a slam quarterfinal, slam semifinal, wins his first title. Those are the headlines. Talk me through what you saw from Shelton this year. Again, I'm a big stage guy, he, and Shelton pretty much showed up where it mattered. And the hardcore slams, at the very least, very Osaka-esque, plug book once more, peeking in the hardcore slams. Uh, Australian Open semis, Somewhat out of nowhere, although I will say, guys who know, looking at present company here, we're very high on him this year. And I actually, the only thing reason I'm not giving him an A+, plus largely, is because he fell short of the American number three like I thought he would be. Just at the end of the year when his <laughs> challenger points fell off, he slipped from three to four and cost him my perfect bold Shelton at number three pick, which I remember you loved when we did the show last year. Um, so, yeah, so... Shelton, you know, took advantage of a of a workable draw for sure at the Australian Open. I mean, not the highest ranked you know, opponent, not the best opponents, and ZZZ at ninety six, and then Jari at one fifty four, Popperin one thirteen, and JJ Wolf at sixty seven. I mean, that's a very soft draw to get to a quarter, but he looked like he deserved to be there. And then, yeah, there's some there were some big uh, lapses and some, you know, uh, some ups and downs, and he lost consecutive weeks in the U.S. Open series uh, season to Jerry Shang. You know, which you don't want to be doing if you're a top twenty player. So, you know, he he had some highs and lows. But again, the U.S. Open, those last two matches that he won were so impressive. Beating Tommy and Francis on those big stages and being ready for those stages was was massive. And so I really liked what he did there and then backing that up pretty well. I think he, after not really following the Australia result well, the finish of his year was really good. You know, goes uh, makes quarters of Shanghai and then makes a final, a wins, uh, excuse me, uh, Tokyo. For his first title again not the toughest draw but still took care of business there beat tommy on the way and yeah and then he loses a couple matches in the indoors to center and to davidovich uh but whatever like i think he's got a, a certain a for sure and coming that far up the rankings and really kind of being in some ways the protagonist because when you're in that younger generation and you beat tommy and francis to be the last american man standing at the us open and in a semi 
it's big. And then he also gets points for being, you know, a character and sort of the whole the whole phone nonsense dialogue that was happening at the uh, at the U.S. Open that he can sort of generate some some story and some some nonsense is is positive, I think, for me. And yeah, I just I just really am impressed by his results and his form. And at the same time, still he still looks raw in a way that's promising. That he still can get better and can refine what he has. And and you know, yeah, his, he and his dad seem to be working really well together as a coaching. Uh, player team so that's a great 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 year for brian shelton i'll add maybe u.s coach of the year potentially although you know thomas coach also you know gets gets points as well i think it's i think it's fantastic uh so a for me easily for shelton for sure so smack dab 95a you mentioned it you know for him to not only have that success but he was so open about it traveling to the australian open was the first time he had left the continental u.s in his life and not only that but for him to go to Europe after that, that's the first time he's not only in Europe, it's the first time he's playing on clay in his professional career. This is a guy who all of his success, yeah. indoor, outdoor, hardcore challenger success in the U.S. in 2022, there was always going to be an acclimation period for Shelton. And that through all of that, you know, once he gets his dad back as his coach late in the season, the comfort level that comes with that to beat not only – two top 15 players, but two American peers in Tommy and Francis back to back. And then, as you mentioned, to get in the head of Djokovic, like he was clearly in Djokovic. Djokovic was thinking about it. He did the phone yep. hang up celebration. That has to matter. Ben just, he has the that energy, the big match energy, the superstar energy, the story. He is the story. Like he's just the one you want to follow. It's an unequivocal A. And, you know, again, to have that, the thing that makes it unequivocal A was the follow-up. To make a quarterfinal at a Shanghai Masters and then to get your first title after what was otherwise, again, a year where you were battling under 500. What a significant run uh, for Shelton to end his season. And yeah, it's an unequivocal A. It's the question now, again, where does he go from here? What's success for you in your mind for Ben in 2024? Top 10, at least. And then, um, you know, what? Minimum, it's got to be top 10 to be an A for you. Yeah. yeah. I'm the other way. I think if he can sustain you, his ranking. This is, this is, this is, this is why no, they love no, no, us. No. This is why they tune in because we're, yeah. because we're, we're, we're offering different things. I'm going to be a harsher grader all the time. No, why I disagree is if he can actually win seven, eight matches on clay, and I actually think he's going to be really good on clay in his career. That's a lot. His That's serve, a lot of clay. Yeah. His heavy forehand top spin. Like I just think he can find his way to six to eight matches on, during the clay court season. Then the way he can dominate on a hard court. Right. I want to see him put together a top 20 season of 250, 500, and 1,000 level results. There's going to be some regression at the slams. It's just really hard to follow up quarterfinal, semifinal for any player under the age of 21. If he can sustain a top 20 ranking next year, it means he's that much better week in, week out. And I think that's a step forward for a guy who is trying to avoid a sophomore slump. So for me, that's B plus A minus range. If there's some slam success thrown on top of it, he'll be back in the A range for me. Look, I mentioned, I mentioned Osaka before. But I do mean that. Like she was someone who always in her career was better at the slams than and was not a good week to week two fifty five hundred kind of level player. You know, I think I think more than half of her career titles are slams, which is crazy. I think she's won seven or eight or whatever it is, and she won four slams. So yeah, what I I think that Shelton can be that kind of player um, where he's just me brings his best because he knows this when it matters. He's a bright lights, big stage kind of guy. And that will bring out the best in them consistently. And I don't expect necessarily the Australian, obviously quarter and semi at the hardcore slams. So that's, that's a high bar, but I don't think he's going to flop. 
And I also think he has a lot of room to improve, uh, obviously going first round, second round at Wimbledon, or, uh, Roland Garrison at Wimbledon. You know, he, he has room for that too. And yeah, being a lefty with a big serve should be great on grass and should be great on clay, especially that kick up high to righty's backhands. I mean, he should be able to cause lots of problems. There's, there's, has not been in a long time a lefty with a huge serve. So he should be ready to, to really make a lot of feasting on this. And yeah, I would think in terms of, you know, you know what lower level success, I would say more just like total wins. I'd see him get 50 wins next year and like double the win count. Let's just, let's just set the bar like that. I'm, I, I'm, I, I, I hold him to high standards. Is he, I'm going to call him the best American. He's got to fly the flag proudly and loudly. Well, That's what I'm we, saying. We, I can't. I, I can't call. I can't give him that honor and then say, "Oh, but it's okay if you just, you know, poop yourself and go out in the first round." Fair enough. That's okay, little Benny. No way. It, it's, a, hold him to it's a spoiler for our end of December podcast where we come back, do the same thing in projecting our top tens for the American men and women uh, at the end of the month. So be on the lookout for that. But I think I can guess who your number one man is going to be on your list heading into 2024. Last but not least on this list, before we get into the rapid fire category, Sebastian. Sebastian Corda, you almost want to give his 43 match season an incomplete. He's 26 and 17 overall in the year. There's not a lot of slam success to talk about after the Australian Open, but oh, sweet baby Rays was that Australian Open in Australia run beautiful. Finalist in Adelaide, match points against Djokovic, opening week of the season, then beats Medvedev and Hercots to get to the quarterfinals before running out of gas. You know, again, didn't really do anything until semifinaling Winston-Salem, finaling Astana, semifinaling Shanghai, where, by the way, he beat Shelton 7-6 in the third. He beat a Medvedev. He beat a Sarundalo. The best of Sebastian Corda were as good as I hoped he they would be this year. He was my preseason number one American. And there were times where, again, I think the highest level we saw from Corda was a higher level than anyone, including Shelton, we saw from the year. Is that enough for a guy who turned 23 years old this season, who continues to just be plagued by injuries at various portions of the year? And we might get a great four weeks, six weeks out of Corda. You never get that two, three-month run you need, certainly not the six to nine-month run that you have to have to compete for the tour finals. But it's clear he's a top 10 talent. He's number 24 to end the season. He reached his career high of 23 to end the year. Again, there are some measurable improvements from Sebi Corda. What's your grade? What's your response? Where does he go from here, Ben Rothenberg, in your mind? Yeah, it's tough because just like you said, it's incomplete. I mean, so it's kind of like, I would say, like A minus slash incomplete. I know, you know, in Michigan, I know we had grades no, I think letter he, and incomplete. His is a report like, card that it says on it, like the teacher says, hey, parents, I need you to come meet us. And then when they meet him, it's like, look, your son is immensely gifted. He's asleep in every class, and he just needs to go to bed earlier. Like, you can't let him play video games because he's growing. He's going to be 6'5", 6'6", his back, sometimes a little stiff. Like, that's Sebi Corda. He is – like, I, I don't – when you said his peak was the peak of the American men this year, I can't argue that too much. I wow. Mean, that's honestly, right, I mean, folks. He, no, no, because, no, especially January quarter. I mean, like what he had – he had match point against Djokovic in that final. Yeah, match point. In yeah, that I mean, second, he, yeah. he could have – yeah, and that was that was fully – you know, that was a good Djokovic. That was not like it was some awful day from Djokovic, really. So he was he was right there. He can really take the racket out of Djokovic's hand. He beats Medvedev at the Australian Open, which is a big win for him. Um, and yeah, and then, and then he gets hurt, obviously, and then matching against Hachinov and misses the next many months. And then he goes and loses when he goes on clay, plays three tournaments, loses it every one to qualifiers. I mean, that's not, 
Great. And so the but then after US Open loss, again another disappointing loss, honestly, to, to Fucevic first round. Uh he goes and tears up the the Asian swing with his runs in Zhuhai, Astana, Shanghai, and uh does great there, and then loses a couple matches on the indoors to finish the year. But so yeah, so the bookends are very, very strong. There's like not much in the middle. So rankings wise, it's tricky because you got a lot to defend in January, obviously with the great January run coming up, but then we hope that he can schedule it together, but it's crazy that he's had this many flashes and high points in his career. Still never been top 20. That's kind of tough to compute. And it does go to sort of the durability or consistency, whatever you want to call it factor that has not been there yet for him. And that's a tough thing to, uh, to that's there's some luck involved in that for sure. And some other things involved as well, but yeah, you hope that he can, he can get that on track because the potential is there and the, the upside is there for sure. And, I liked your pick for him last year being U.S. number one. I think he's a reasonable pick for 2024 if you want to put him at number one next time. If everyone does their best, you know, or does a, a reasonable uh, best, I think Korda, yeah, is an option there for sure. But we just still haven't – I feel like we still haven't really seen him play a full season huh? still, which is concerning, but some, also exciting, but also concerning. Some scholars are arguing he's an Asia-South Pacific guy. That's what we learned about him in 2023. But no, I, I agree. Like Again, he's 23 years old. He's still young. It happens again in 2024. Now you're entering your mid-20s and you still have these injury issues plaguing you. Then you start to become seriously concerned about will he be able to fulfill that promise? Because again, when he is healthy and playing his best, the ceiling is clearly at least top 10, maybe even higher than that. And so... He was an A-minus level, maybe even at times drifting towards an A when you saw him. It's just a little incomplete because the assignment wasn't always turned in. So maybe you average out to like an 88 B-plus range. A lot of B-pluses being handed out so far. Maybe the totality of B-pluses is how I got us to an A-minus overall. That's funny. All right. Rapid fire the rest of the way. Ben Rothenberg, you get four sentences or less to describe these player seasons, how you feel about them heading into 2024. Let's start with Chris Eubanks. Title run in Mallorca. Quarterfinals, the Miami Open, the big moment where he breaks the top 100, but quarterfinals Wimbledon, of course, as well. I was startled the first time I saw a two next to his name in the rankings in the 20s. I was like, huh? Like, what's going on? Shout out Chris Eubanks, one of the breakout Americans. Your thoughts? Yeah, if we'd seen a two in the rankings next to his name before, it was 200 something. Yeah. So so that's, that's really impressive. Um, in four sentences or less, basically, he went from being a feel good story to being a headline story. You know, with what he did at Miami, it was everyone already sort of, he'd been such a popular guy to, it was in a, with the WTA as well, hitting partner frequently for Naomi, Coco, Serena, players like that, and going from sort of miscongeniality of the tour to actually competing for for the Tierra at the end of this thing. So it was a great run for him. He was, his, his game really showed he compete with the best we did to to Sitsipas was, was huge. And I'll also give him a lot of points for what he did off court, just his ambassadorialness and his uh, tennis channel work. You know, he's 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 this figure who is a yeah, uh, a real statesman of this of this of the sport of American tennis, a great sort of face for it. So, yeah, lots to like there. I want you to know the senses are far more concise in Naomi Osaka, a path to her finding her journey and power and voice. And, <laughs> close enough. Close yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, again. Finding, so, her, finding her debit yeah, card, whatever she finds along that, the way. Yeah. That was concise enough. Again, how replicable is it? I don't know. The serve, the ability to win free points. Chris Eubanks has the weapons to be a top 100 player. Certainly has the personality to be a part of the tennis world for a long time moving forward. Let's move to a veteran. Mackie McDonald. 
not a headline result for Mackey this year, but a result that's going to pay the bills. Certainly moving forward, you look for McDonald, the now 28-year-old, 41, 10 the year, 37 in October was a career high for him. His headline result uh, this season, quarterfinals in Canada, quarterfinals you high. There's a bunch of good results for him littered throughout the calendar. Where are you with Mackey? What's his upside in the immediate trajectory? This was him getting to play a full calendar, I feel like, which hasn't happened a lot for him given all his injury concerns over the years. And it was a lot of quantity. I mean, he played a lot of matches, 65 matches this year. And some good, decent quality as well. I mean, he's, he goes from, what, 63 to 42. That's very solid. You know, definitely he has to be happy with that. He's a veteran presence in the sport. And, yeah, just very work with, like, very professional kind of thing. I'll say a lot of the same things, honestly, about Giron, who we're going to talk about soon. But kind of they're in the same boat for me largely as, as UCLA guys there doing similar things. Mackie may be a step above in the rankings, but tracking pretty similarly as, as stable veteran presences on a, a pretty young U.S. roster otherwise. I mean, they're the kind of guys who are four or five years old or three, four or five years old, whatever it may be. And and yeah, good role models for for consistency there. The weapons speed are real. We're going to skip Giron, skip J.J. Wolf, but again, they're still in the top 70. Like Those are guys who are just going to be a part of the ecosystem for the next three plus years, a little longer for Wolf. He's a little younger, obviously, than Garone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next category, our last three here. Now on the radar. I want you to, again, concise in your answer. Is this player now on your radar after the 2023 they had? Are you intrigued going into 2024? What's your degree of intrigue, I suppose? Alex Mickelson wins his first challenger this year, makes his first tour-level final into the top 100, started the year playing futures. Where are you with the tall righty who really does feel like Bambi out there? Yeah, he's fun to watch because he is so clearly uh, ungainly a lot of times. And a little, you know, he's growing into like his body. Said, you can see it. Yeah, totally. And he looks young out there. And he has played, but he's also just a super great shot maker. The limbs are kind of everywhere, but the ball goes in with, with zip. I watched him actually very early in the year. I watched him be Jack Sock, the aforementioned Jack Sock, in the Cleveland Challenger in like late January, early February, something like that. And, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of Mickelson, the wild card at that event. And, and he was. He was great. And his results, you know, so I kept an eye on him after that. He definitely got the Resultina edition after that. So I've seen the Mickelson results uh, trickle in. And yeah, he, what he did at the end of the year, winning, you know, the Challenger in Knoxville and, and final in Champaign was a was a big deal. It gets him into the top 100. And yeah, lots of like, I don't, I haven't seen him play too much against actual top players to know like what he's going to stack up and where he is. But he's a work in progress for sure. Like I said, just things look undeveloped. Total in a, in, a, in a way in his game that still is, I read as positive, I read as being raw and potential. Uh, yeah, so definitely a, a welcome arrival uh, to this uh, conversation. Riley's made that late challenger push. Ben made that late challenger push. Eubanks made a similar late challenger push last year. Tommy did it historically as well. Noah Rubin, when he made his moment, he had a late challenger push at the end of the season like this. Americans do this before going on to success in the next year, and I do think Alex. I have a semi-hot take here on the challengers. 
I think that's the one part of the U.S. Challenger uh, schedule that's like worth paying attention to from top line tennis. I think the rest two, of it, I'm no, unconvinced. Like the green I, green clay, I don't think means anything. Oh, I like it because it's an opportunity to give a guy to play the French Open. Like Patrick. Gibson I know, but I think, that's, that, I think that's. I think that. I, think, I hate Gibson. that. I hate that wild card. Yeah, I hate that well, wild card. You hate things. That's not how we. I do. I think that. the reciprocals yeah. are a bad deal for Americans. I'm a, America first when it comes to wild yeah, cards. This is keeping true. those Americans in in keeping those wild cards in the U.S. and so. Yeah, I, I think it's a terrible deal, and I think that that augurs nothing, and the guys don't do anything with it in Paris. So, give it back, Martin take back D- the French one. We don't need we don't need uh, uh, Hugo Grenier taking up a spot or whatever. Not that, I don't know if it's actually him or whoever. Whatever anonymous Frenchman's taking up a spot in flush and give that to an American. Give back the French spot. Much better deal. Australia too. Martin Dom, next name on the list. Dom, the twenty year old, starting to make a bunch of challengers at the quarterfinal level. Uh, quarterfinals at the challenger level is how you say that he's a big lefty big serve real weapons growing into his body is he on your radar yet ben well it's funny because on tennis abstract they can't tell him apart from his dad yeah sure so it's listed as having a rank a peak rank of 42 in 1997 yeah i think it's a lot of fun before he was born not him no definitely not him uh i honestly i've barely seen martin dom the younger um but you asked me about a player rank 257 is, is tough i will i will say but He's the results are great. I mean, like, look, he's someone who was seen in the juniors already. I remember seeing him at Wimbledon years back as a junior, and he's a big, tall, strong, big serving guy. So the potential is clearly there. And the results are coming in too. I mean, like, he's been grinding clearly at the sort of futures level, and, and now he's up to being a solid challenger level kind of guy. Yeah, and semifinals in uh, uh, a challenger in Bratislava, including where he beat uh, Cressy uh, and Joao Sosa. So some nice wins there. Joao Sosa in uh, challenger quality as well. Uh, and be Benoit Pair. There's some names he's racking up here, you know, and some some players, some maybe over the hill players potentially, but still some players that he's beating. Um, so yeah, so definitely trending the right way. I know the potential is there just from seeing his build and seeing his shots um, a bit. So, but I haven't watched him play a full match honestly this year. But he's put, he's doing well. Put it on your list, things to do in 2024. Last but yeah. not least, and again, real weapons, tall lefty, coach's favorite words always. Last one. Small lefty, but a two-time slam finalist this year, semi-finalist, quarter-finalist at the other two junior slams as well. Played uh, half a season at USC, two-time Kalamazoo champion now. Lerner Tian on your radar yet, Ben? No, I watched him in Australia. I watched those matches, the junior matches there. And and like what he has a lot um, as a sort of junior player, like you mentioned Kozlov, kind of get Kozlov vibes from him a bit, just in terms of just being crafty on court and, and moving the ball around and maybe not being the most – uh, explosive athlete out there per se, but just being a really skilled guy. And I don't know how that translates to the pros. If we're talking about him on a pro level, I don't know. I have not seen enough of Lerner Tien, uh, but I just, as a pure tennis purist, to like seeing guys, you know, be creative and hit shots. He, 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 there are a lot of endorphins going off watching him uh, from that. That was a, a pleasing match. Who's got to be on your must watch in 2024. can can in the first serve and he's grown a little bit. He's almost yeah. around six foot now and grown into his body as well. Again, the weapons are very clear. He gets outside the ball so well, able to find angles, yeah. able to drive to the court, cross court with pace. He's already had future success. He's going to get a lot of challenger opportunities because of his junior ranking already next season. Again, an American teenager has to be on your radar. I think those are the three who stood out the most from this season. But He just turned 18 this week. Happy birthday to Lerner. Yeah, about happy birthday, Lerner. My last question to you it relates on the five-year prospects. Here are the guys, top 200 right now. 
26, under 26, and, you know, again, I have them divided into tiers of to be excited about. My tier one talents right now, guys who I do think could be competing for slam titles over the next five years. I have Corda and Shelton, both in tier one. Tier two, I have Tommy, Taylor, Francis, Mickelson, and the healthiest version of Riley Opelka. Tier three, I have J.J. Wolf, Michael Moe, Brandon Nakashima, Brooksby, Cressy, Martin Dom, and another former two-time Kalamazoo champion in Zachary Svida, who I all think will be in the mix and around 50 in the world or higher over the next few years. Lerner Tien, I would, I don't know if it'll be next five years, but it'll be in the future as well. Obviously, again, you've got some veterans, Eubanks, Mackey, Garone, Cressy as well. It's a pretty good crew, Ben Rothenberg, is it not, as you look for the next five-year forecast? Yeah, look, the depth is there, and just seeing on the rankings, the sort of the pack moved up because it previously was a pack between like fifteen and thirty, and this year it was a pack between ten and twenty-five. Top twenty-five. You said it exactly. That's that's the top line result. That's the headline here for American Men's Tennis, and that's very good. Having that many seeds at a Grand Slam is is very good. Um, And Eubanks not far off of the seeded territory to at thirty-four currently. So so yeah, really good top line stuff from the American men. You can't argue with that. Where the slam comes from, which is the next story, it always is with American men's tennis. That is the story. It's been 20 years since the last one, more than 20 years now since Andy Roddick. I think the Corda and Shelton can do it. I think they can do it next year. I think next year it's not off the table because, look, we're in a situation where the top of the sport is being ruled by a 36-year-old guy who's turning 37 next year, right? And he's clearly the best, but that cannot last forever just based on pure age and just pure, that's how the logic of sports work. And so there will be opportunities in the next one, two, three years for some guys to come a bit from the outside and, and win a slam. That will happen. They will start being those kind of results in men's tennis. It's going to happen. And these those Americans are putting themselves in the mix in that conversation. And that is something that should be exciting for, Amer- for American tennis fans uh, when it comes Shout out to also Michael Moe we didn't talk about, but Michael Moe finished just in the top 100 and had some really big wins this year. When he's healthy, um, he's a top 100 player. He just hasn't been healthy for yeah, 11 his months. Game, I watch his game and I still don't totally get it. I'll be perfectly yeah. honest, but but he... Fourth round but US his, Open. Or third his round, whatever was, it was. Yeah, 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 it wasn't fourth, but his results were there and he mm. it beats Hodgson off there, it beats Zverev in, in Australia and a couple other solid wins. Like, yeah, he, he for some reason, he makes guys uncomfortable. So he's he's... Shout out to him. We didn't mention him, but he's just outside the top 100 there. Um, yeah, so it's a good good crop, and might see some bounce backs from Cressy and Nakashima for sure in 2024. Uh, Nava, we didn't talk about Nava. Okay. I, I like a lot. Real quick, because it's going to bother yeah. me, you dismissed my Michael Moe fourth round. It was a third round loss to Jack Draper, so I wasn't that far off. No, but you were wrong. I mean, I said I said it wasn't fourth, and I was right. Yeah, so I mean, okay, but you gave it like no, a big, lost first big difference between second between first week and second week. Anyways, big carry difference. on. Like saying he won the title versus the main semis. Anyway, um, yeah, I I think it's good, and I'm optimistic and looking forward to what this group uh, has going. I think it's an interesting, interesting group, and yes, I think next couple of years is when it's going to happen. Right? This is this is it. Now it's like these these, especially Taylor, Tommy, Francis, and even maybe arguably Corda. They're incubated. Their time is now. It's kind of put up or shut up time in an exciting way. Hopefully, so let's see what they got. I agree. And that's the on-tennis aspect. The last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, off the court, we lose Newport, I believe. We lose Atlanta, I believe. Talk about that impact. Again, we have Dallas. We have the Sunshine Swing. We have Cincinnati. We have the U.S. Open. I think that's the list of events now. We In Houston, that's our list of events. Delray. And Delray, okay. 
is that yeah, but I think it's, that's it's, the ATP. It's it's grim on the ATP side. Again, the only indoor hard court we have is Dallas. Like that, I know for certain. Not a ton of North America. You know, again, Mexico's got a, a couple now, and obviously you've got Europe, you've got Asia, you've got the South American February swing, Sunshine Swings, and New York. That's really it. And Cincy. And Washington. Yeah, I mean, there's oh, DC, there's sure. there's there's some, but it's definitely less, and it's been a, a long trend. I mean, if you look at the the score the tour schedule in the '80s and early '90s, yeah. it was women's too it was mostly in america a lot of these tournaments you know they would go around playing it was a largely north american professional sport and with occasional dips to europe and australia you know when the slams were there but otherwise it was in america was its home and asia was not part of it and asia has really eaten into a lot of times encounter that were previously american and so the sport is globalizing which is a nice thing to say and it sounds positive but it's gonna be tough for you know like any kind of globalization honestly for america in certain industries and and yeah, and so American tennis fans are losing out on that. I would say, like I mentioned before, I do think those fall challenger events are, are high quality American stuff. If you are someone who made it to the end of this episode and like American men's tennis, go watch, uh, go go to Champaign, go to Knoxville, go to Charlottesville, one of those, and you'll have a, a nice time with some fall tennis and get up close to the guys and probably you know get to meet them and talk to them if you want to. It's a it's a pretty cool experience to be at a challenger like that and see some of the the some familiar names who are dropping down and also some of the big names you'll get to see on the tv in the future i get to see or them a college say that say that you thing. saw them when or a college sure but challengers is what we're talking pros here so i'm going to mostly take challengers for this conversation i yeah i think i think that the business side is tough and we'll see i don't think it's trending in any other way but there's also this the general trend um in the sport to focus on and we do a brief sidebar on, on tennis business stuff, but there is this trend towards focusing on the making the bigger events bigger and making it more like Formula One and having like 14 or 15, whatever maximum premium events and having everything else kind of fall down. So it might just be, I mean, I think Washington is a 500 will, will has the kind of history to survive as something I would hope, but you know, Cincinnati and Miami, uh, will, or definitely Cincinnati will get bigger and will kind of cannibalize the rest is how it's working. And I don't love that trend personally as a fan, as, a, as a, someone following the sport. I think the tour structure was fine, but the, the momentum is towards making these bigger events even bigger. And uh, yeah, don't love it, but that's that's where it's headed. That's where they think the money is. That's where it's going to head. It'll be fascinating to see how it all develops. Well, another thing we're all fascinated about, Ben, is again, first book coming out. Are you excited for the release? I know, again, I want to get a few plugged that. We'll talk about it more on a separate show, but talk about that. What else do you have on the horizon? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about it. I know we're going to do a show about the book soon. Um, so I'm excited because I haven't, honestly, that's one of the most exciting parts about this phase of the book is people finally reading it. <laughs> and so again, to talk to people who've read the book, honestly, because for so long, it's a fairly solitary process of just you talking to your uh, your your Word document, which gets absurdly long, hmm. uh, six-digit Word document, Word count is a new territory for me in this book. Yeah, but it was, it was a lot of uh, it was it was it was a I think a fairly fulfilling project for me to do, and uh, I'm proud of it how it turned out, and hopefully people enjoy it and can pre-order. There's a lot of I mean Naomi Osaka is an American tennis story in a lot of ways. I mean her formative years for tennis were in the U.S. I mentioned the Kozlovs, the Kozlovs from this book, and lots of other uh, familiar names. Uh, two American tennis fans and USTA, lots of USTA stuff in there. Why American, lots of American players are choosing not to play for the U.S. is a growing trend, and Naomi is part of that trend. Um, yeah, so I think it's an interesting, uh, even just from a purely American perspective, it, there's a lot of, of tennis stuff in there for for fans to appreciate and get to know this very relevant, very famous player better, hopefully. 
It's been a delight to read thus far, and I look forward to having you on the podcast to talk about it in more depth. Ben Rothenberg, three hours of your time. That's always a pleasure to ask for, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you, my friend, and I'm sure we will be talking more in the near future. Thanks, Alex. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with our dear friend, Ben Rothenberg. Again, a thank you to him for giving us over two and a half hours of his time to offer an update on all things State of the Union in American men's and women's tennis. Again, if you want to hear more of Ben, go check out his No Challenges remaining podcast and be sure to get Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. Ben's first book pre-ordered before release. It's a perfect gift for your family who are tennis inclined over the holidays as well. And again, we look forward to having Ben on the podcast to break down that book in further depth a little bit later. That said, that will do it for today's show. Again, great shot podcast feed, correct interviews podcast feed, all rocking and rolling. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic guest, Ben Rothenberg, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.